You are listening to The Briefing First broadcast on the 20th of February 2024 on Monaco Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. Coming up on today's program... Yulia Navalnaya issues a passionate plea for Russians to stand up to Vladimir Putin and continue the work of her late husband. After that, Australia plans to turn its navy from a backwater to a fleet rivaling the British. We'll have the details with our very own Andrew Muller, who also brings us this. After this war, we would need a platform where we can agree on what we can do together and also disagree on many other things. Malta's Foreign Minister Ian Borg speaks out in Munich. We'll also have the latest business headlines and finally we'll look at strikes closing a Paris icon, the Eiffel Tower, sparking fears just ahead of the Olympics. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. Yesterday, the world heard a particularly fiery video message from someone who until now had been largely in the background. Yulia Navalnaya, wife of the late Alexei Navalny, vowed to continue her late husband's work and urged Russian opposition leaders to stand up and fight for their country. She also made clear that she believes Vladimir Putin killed Navalny as authorities continue to refuse to release his body. Well, Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University with a research focus on Russian politics and security. She joins me now on the line. Jenny, what was your impression, before we even get to this video message and presentation yesterday, I was just wondering what your impression was of Yulia Navalnaya before yesterday's video message. Mm, well, she's really been with Navalny since the beginning. Of course, their their marriage predated his high profile involvement in politics. Uh, but she was always kind of with him at every step. So out on protests, there's lots of photographs of the two of them standing together, for example, in the 2011-12 series of, of protests against election falsifications. Uh, when he ran for, you know, mayor of Moscow, when he was on trial multiple times, she was always there in the courtroom. Um, really, she's been a constant presence. And it's been very, you know, sort of refreshing in some respects um, that Navalny was so open about the fact that, you know, he he relied upon his wife uh, for advice and for emotional support, uh, especially in a very sterile uh, Russian political um, environment where, for example, you know, Putin famously uh, is never pictured uh, with, uh, you know, was never pictured with his wife when he was married to her, you know, never talks about his family. Mm, yeah, it's very interesting that that role that she played as you as you contrasted with with others in Russia. I mean, so the one thing was she was she was very much by Navalny's side and perhaps a confidant, but not somebody who necessarily spoke out herself as much. What what in that sense is your impression now, given the role, the video message and what, what she did yesterday? Well, I would imagine that she has given a lot of thought to what she might do in the event of her husband's death, because you know, in and out of prison and then in prison for an indefinite period, frankly, and and in worse and worse conditions, she must have given this some serious thought. So, you know, it it must have been a a considered decision to step out of the shadows into the limelight and really, 
take a leading role to try and, and pick up the mantle of his leadership of the opposition and to provide sort of a focus because she has that name recognition of Navalny. She has the face recognition because, you know, during the sort of middle 2010s, they were sort of a, a glamour couple in many respects. And she was on the cover of women's magazines in Russia and being interviewed and so on. So, you know, she is recognizable as a figure in her own right in Russia, even though she hasn't, you know, pre previously said much about politics. Well, and she was sort of, there were messages of support from various opposition leaders and activists in Russia after her video message. What What is your sense of what that could actually do? Is there is there any hope in your mind of actually galvanizing people in Russia? Or is this something that at this point, at least, is some, will come more from outside of Russia? Well, I think she's obviously adopting a multi-strand strategy here because she, you know, went to uh, the Munich Security Conference and addressed political leaders. You know, she went to the EU and addressed the Council of Ministers. Um, and yet her, her message on social media, the video that you mentioned, that's very much aimed at ordinary Russians. You know, a lot of her messages were about, you know, the importance of, of being positive, uh, the importance of doing even small things rather than doing nothing. Um, so she's clearly got an idea about how to address different audiences. Um, but of course, an important element of, of the opposition in Russia is the fact that it is so divided and it's so fractious, uh, you know, literally <clears throat> geographically divided between those who are abroad and those who are in Russia, many of whom are in prison. Um, so it's difficult to physically get them all together, but also it's difficult to get them all on the same page in many respects, uh, because this is a longstanding issue with, with the Russian opposition going back generations, uh, that they have a very hard time coming together and, and agreeing sort of a common program. So there is at least at, at the moment, um, an indication that there's a willingness to try and unite around Yulia to try and, and heal some of those differences and, and to try and present a much more united front. Do we expect Vladimir Putin to react at all to her new role and, and to her attempts to sort of galvanize the opposition? He's been decorating the deputy director of the Russian prison service, which is a pretty, well, it sends, sends its own message, if you will, today. It does indeed. And and actually, that is very evocative of, of what he did in the aftermath of, of the revelations about the, the, the human rights abuses and the murders in Bucha in, in Ukraine. He decorated uh, a whole unit, uh, which was largely regarded as responsible for that. So it's it's very evocative. Um, but but no, I mean, I think it's it's unlikely that he's going to mention her by name because he famously re was reluctant to mention uh, Navalny by name. So it's unlikely that he's going to you know extend to, to his widow that that courtesy. Um, but if he does refer to her at all, I would expect it to be in quite a disparaging, um, marginalizing kind of a way, because women in politics in Russia um, tend not to achieve very high level positions. They tend to be, you know, at much lower levels if they're in politics at all. Um, and it's a very, you know, patriarchal, very misogynistic political system. So I wouldn't expect him to take her very seriously. Well, if he doesn't take her seriously, what about EU foreign ministers? I wonder if you had a view on that. She also addressed them yesterday. Do we expect them to actually do anything about this to address some of her concerns? Or is it more about that this could at least strengthen support for Ukraine, perhaps? Well, that's that's part of the the hope is that the the members of the of the policy community in the EU in particular, 
um, will see the necessity of coming together and really focusing their attention on not only putting more pressure on Russia through perhaps additional sanctions, uh, but also looking for much more um, dynamic ways of supporting Ukraine and really ramping that support up. Because frankly, defeating Russia on the battlefield in Ukraine is the best hope that the Russian opposition has in the short term of trying to change things in domestic politics in Russia. Just finally, Jenny, before you go, I wonder if we can glean anything from the role of other spouses of activists or opposition leaders. This is a dark but, you know, frankly, all too common trend, as you said at the outside as well, Yulia, would have been prepared for this to take on this kind of role. Yeah, so we've seen this on numerous occasions, really across different places, across different times. Um, you know, most notably, the the Belarusian um, opposition is led by Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who is the the widow of a not sorry, the widow, the wife of a man who uh, is imprisoned, and she herself sort of stepped up and and ran for president and is widely regarded as having actually won that election. Um, but yes, I mean, it, there's a tried and true and, you know, very, very sorrowful path of the widows of a prominent military, a prominent political leaders, sorry, uh, sort of stepping up and, and trying to, to carry on the, the legacy of their husbands. Um, I mean, you know, in some respects, it's a way into politics for some women and some women have been quite successful. Um, others have more, you know, been on the sidelines, but but trying to keep their husband's uh, visions alive. So I think we'll just have to see. I mean, she's a very determined woman, clearly. Uh, she has a lot of strength. She has a lot of ideas. Um, you know, she would have strategized with Navalny throughout his political, uh, you know, professional life. And so she would be very familiar with different strategies, uh, different ways of getting her message across. So she's she's well placed uh, in, in a very sad way um, to, to try and, and, you know, make something of this opportunity to really uh, advance the cause of, of the Russian opposition. Thanks very much to Jenny Mathers there. And you can hear from Belarus's Tsikhanovskaya later today on the Monocle Daily. Now here's Sophie Monhan-Coombs with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. Farmers in Greece are expected to drive their tractors to Athens on Tuesday to protest against the rising cost of living. The demonstrations follow similar protests by agricultural workers across Europe, including in France, Germany and Belgium. More than 1,600 doctors in South Korea have gone on strike over government plans to raise the number of places at medical schools. Some hospitals have been forced to delay surgeries or turn away patients, but officials say there has been no major disruption to the healthcare system. And a judge in Haiti has ordered the arrest of 50 people in connection with the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moise. A leaked document names Moise's widow, the former prime minister and an ex-chief of police as being involved in the killing. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Sophie. Now... Over the last few years, Australia has been not so quietly stepping up defence purchases, acquiring nuclear submarines as part of AUKUS, and more recently a series of rather secretive, to an extent, drone manufacturing announcements. Now it is the turn of the Navy. Australia's defence minister has announced plans for the country's Navy to more than double its surface combat fleet. Our contributing editor and resident Aussie, Andrew Muller, is here to tell us more. Andrew, was this a surprise for you or a long overdue announcement we had all expected? 
Why not both? Uh, no, it, it, it is it is long overdue. I don't need to tell our listeners, I don't think, uh, just how big Australia is. And given its size, given the enormous coastline uh, that we need to protect and guard, we have been doing so for decades with a, an almost risibly tiny Royal Australian Navy. Um, so... It's overdue in that respect, and it's a surprise in that respect, because for any government trying to cut spending, defence is always tempting because defence purchases tend to be fabulously expensive. Uh, They tend not to come on stream for years, if not decades. It is very, very easy to kick that can along and think that's going to be somebody else's problem. Um, so the, yeah th- this is this is absolutely remarkable and australia is even more tempted i think by the idea of cutting on defence because you know you you can get not unreasonably complacent you can think we are a continent sized island fortress in the middle of nowhere um invasion is an extremely uh, remote prospect. Also, we have no territorial designs on anybody else. So you kind of think, well, we can just maybe muddle through with the bare minimum. We can show up when there's a thing, maybe, but we're actually kind of all right. It's interesting that you put it that way, because at the same time, you could certainly argue, given Australia's location, essentially, well, an island, that the Navy could be a big deal. Why, why in your mind, has it not kind of been a bigger part of the public consciousness and how in that sense are they likely to take to this announcement that they will now potentially have a navy that rivals the British? It is a strange one. Australia, as people familiar with the country will know, does massively, massively sentimentalise its armed forces uh, to the extent that Anzac Day uh, in April is probably our biggest uh, national or unifying national observance. But most of that tends to be directed by the directed towards the army rather than uh, the Royal Navy or the Royal Australian Air Force. Strangely given uh, our stature as an island nation, uh, we don't instinctively think of ourselves as a great nation of seafarers. I've never really understood why that is. (laughs) So if we don't in the past, what has changed? What has prompted this from the Defence Ministry's perspective in your mind? Is there something different about the threat from China now than maybe even a few years ago, or is there something else going on? They've said up front that this is a reaction to, you know, the, the increasing uncertainty of the Pacific, and that's saying China without necessarily mm. saying China. I, I think the likelihood is that this is Australia thinking, well, if there is any kind of confrontation between the United States and China, that will probably end up involving uh, Australia in some respect. Australia does take its alliance with the United States extremely seriously. It does regard that as the absolute bedrock um, of, of its of its defence, and that was something we saw manifested much to the irritation of France uh, in the in the AUKUS agreement. Um, so, yeah, there is that. It is it is mostly about China, but I, I do also wonder if perhaps Australia is starting to think uh, in the same way that Europe is starting to think, or certainly that Europe should be starting to think. Um, can we necessarily always rely eternally on the United States? I mean, if we go ahead and assume that Donald Trump is indifferent to the fate of Estonia, Lithuania or Latvia, and I think that's a reasonable assumption, why should we assume he cares any more about Australia? 
Is that also a message that is reaching the public, do you imagine, in Australia at this point? I mean, one of the aspects of this, if you're going to double the size of your fleet, you will need people mm. lining up to man that <laughs> fleet, although there is also part of this is sort of using new technologies and actually having unmanned, uh, an unmanned combat fleet to a degree. But what, what do you expect? Like, where's the balance there? How many people will they need as well to man this? And are Australians going to actually line up and do it? They're going to need a lot more people than they presently have. You are right to point out that part of this investment is getting into potentially unmanned uh, ships, and that is certainly going to be part of the future of naval warfare. But all of the Australian Defence Force uh, is having chronic problems with recruitment and has been for some time, to the extent that quite recently they announced a bonus of $50,000, which is no small change to anybody who, having completed their initial three-year period of service, was willing to sign up for another three years. Uh, And the Royal Australian Navy obviously has an issue with recruitment that the other two services don't, in that by definition, if you're certainly if you're going to be aboard a ship, you're going to be away a long time for protracted periods, let alone on a submarine. It's not an easy thing. And the other thing the ADF runs up against is that, certainly in terms of retention, is that people find that the skills they learn uh, in the Australian Defence Forces are very readily exportable to sectors such as mining, for example, where they can earn not merely slightly more than they were making serving the Australian military, but multiples of what they were making serving the Australian Navy. I, I do wonder, it might be a slightly counterintuitive one, but I recall it being a successful initiative at the time. In the 1980s, the Royal Australian Navy ran a recruitment campaign, the tagline of which was, you'll be wet, homesick and frightened. And apparently it it did actually have a fairly encouraging effect. (laughs) Just finally, Andrew, uh, you mentioned mining there and other aspects. I just wonder what this will do for the domestic defence industry in Australia, also something that was not a particularly big deal, perhaps, in the past, relying more on others, but this is a major step up for the domestic industry, the drones as well, for that matter. Oh, oh, absolutely. In terms of the ships alone, at least some of them will be built, I think, in Adelaide. They're talking about 3,000 jobs there, at least. Some of the equipment will be coming from overseas. But yeah, it's it's a big investment in Australian defence. It's a, you know both at home and projecting uh, force abroad. Um, and I think, again, it's just as Europe is starting to think in terms of self-reliance, I think there might be an amount of that beginning to creep into Australia's defensive thinking as well. Andrew, thank you. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. Now, Andrew Muller is still with us here on The Briefing, and that's because we'll be turning to your recent trip to Munich. Andrew, you spoke with Malta's foreign minister. Uh, we did speak to Malta's foreign minister, Ian Borg. I, th- I can't even remember which day that was now. It, is, it, it, is all, <laughs> it all blends into it, one. It is all a bit of a blur. Uh, I think he was one of the first ones we did. But yeah, it, it was an interesting one for us to do because regular listeners will know that we talk a lot about small countries and the way that they can project themselves on the world stage. They do not come much smaller than Malta, obviously. But there is also the interesting factor uh, where Mr. Borg is concerned that he's the current chair in office of the OSCE, which at least as we go to air, I understand that there may be movement uh, on Russia's membership of this organisation, is still one of the very few forums left in which 
people like EU foreign ministers are at least semi-regularly sitting down with people like Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Um, and so I, I did begin by asking uh, Ian Borg if he thought there was still value in having a conduit like that. Dialogue to a certain extent exists because our permanent representatives meet weekly in in Vienna and the Russian PR is there with the other 56 participating states. Of course, it's very, very disappointing that one is making use of the unanimity requirement to stop things rather than move, move forward and adopt the budget and therefore... It's not easy for the organization to work and to function whilst a participating state is uh, raging a war of aggression against another one. But I believe that after this war, we would need a platform of also non-like-minded where we can agree on what we can do together and also disagree on many other things. And like many of the foreign ministers echoed in Skopje, If we let the OSCE die, we would need to set up another one. This was also the message to Foreign Minister Lavrov. And in fact, the Russians did not kill the OSCE. They they agreed to Malta uh, being a chair in office uh, in 2024, whilst we have a very strong and clear stance on their war in in Ukraine. That is also uh, very telling. It's a question we've asked a few foreign ministers that do represent smaller nations, and I mean that just as a straightforward descriptor, not in the pejorative sense. But especially when you are also chair of the OSCE, do you think that being a representative of a smaller nation does actually give you a bit more freedom to operate diplomatically, that you're not kind of as, as, as burdened by status as a bigger country is? Do smaller countries have, I guess... Yeah, a, a greater great, greater amount of room to think independently as diplomats. Well, I don't know how how it feels being a big country, <laughs> <laughs> but we are happy to uh, sometimes manage to punch above our weight. So, so hosting the the third peace formula summit for Ukraine, and also uh, giving safe space to National Security Advisor uh, Sullivan and Chinese Minister Wang Yi to meet in Malta. I mean, these are, these are all efforts that a small administration struggle to deliver, but we're happy to be also trusted by different powers. And I think it's because they know where we stand. We stand with what is right and against, against wrongdoers. This is also why we still hold dear to our to our heart the neutrality, military neutrality that is enshrined in our constitution. So at, at this conference generally then, is most of your focus going to be on Ukraine-related matters or are there other things that Malta is is trying to draw attention to? Of course, we're, we're very much concerned what's going on in, in Gaza as well. A conflict that Malta was always very vocal on for decades and, of course, we were active sitting on the Security Council in uh, passing a resolution 27-12 in, in November that managed to have uh, to achieve a humanitarian pause for 10 days and then building on that, you had other countries like US, Qatar, Egypt to also agree on the release of hostages. But this conflict is definitely not over yet. It is also, in my opinion, the cause of many other regional turbulence 
not least disruptions in the economy and the supply chain. You see what's happening in the Red Sea. And this is really not needed after getting out of COVID. We have Ukraine. When you're talking about this stuff with um, EU foreign ministers in particular, is it is it more difficult to make Malta's voice heard given the stance Malta has taken on the migrant crisis, the fact that you have more or less made it clear that you won't pick up boats. There's even been cases of Maltese authorities being not all that keen to respond to distress calls from ships sailing across the Mediterranean. I cannot agree with you. Uh, Malta is fully committed to save lives at sea. On the other hand, we do not support uh, NGOs stepping over government competence to surveil and rescue lives at sea. Uh, we do see an important role for NGOs dealing with, with migration, integration and other areas. On the other hand, we have an excellent cooperation with Italy because ultimately smugglers and migrants themselves, they don't want to stop on another island after, after making all the journey. They want mainland Europe and therefore transparency and utmost collaboration with Italy is crucial. That is very much happening. We're actually having even a better coordination with the current Italian government and also with the Libyan coast guards, both west and the east side. Because ultimately Libya is also a transit country that has to deal with these challenges together with many other issues they have because of political instability. So, no, I don't agree with you. We do our best to save lives at sea, but also we make it very clear around the table in Brussels what we think and what should our friends also do in order to avoid the rise of extreme rights and populist voices because they can succeed when they find fertile land. And fertile land, in my opinion, is when governments are not able to manage migration. Malta's Foreign Minister Ian Borg there speaking to Andrew Muller. You are listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. This is The Briefing and I'm Chris Chermak. It's time now for the latest business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, who joins us from Dubai. Ewan, some interesting moves in the always tricky market of predicting US interest rates. Hello, Chris. Yeah, there's nothing more important to investors and markets than the path of interest rates. Pretty important for the rest of us as well. There's been, of course, endless speculation over the last six months as to when interest rates will start to come down. Now, in Europe, The problem is we have little to no growth. In the UK, where I'm usually based, we know that the economy entered a technical recession at the end of last year. Germany also in recession and much of the euro area in pretty much the same position. But of course, central banks are also worried about sticky inflation, 4% in the UK, a little bit less uh, around the continent. But those price rises are still going on and they're still concerning central bankers. So that is a difficult balance. But let me take you to somewhere else in the world where there is an entirely different story. That is the United States of America. The economic data out of the US just continues coming in hot. GDP is growing at a really quite uh, robust pace. The job market is healthy. So all that strength in the US economy is uh, leading to some very interesting bets uh, in the money markets. And that is something which was unthinkable just a couple of months ago, that perhaps the Federal Reserve's next move in interest rates might be up rather than down. Now, this is not the base case scenario But there is already some talk in the markets that perhaps the Fed might need to tighten rates even further than where they are now. 
in order to get a hang on inflation. Uh, so that's a really interesting move. You only need to go back to the beginning of this year, which is what, six, seven weeks ago. And most people thought the Fed was going to cut in March. There was a fair chance of March. Certainly by May, they would be cutting. Now, nobody thinks the Fed is going to cut in March. And even a lot of people are starting to think that May or June are looking less likely. So yeah, people are starting to hedge their bets uh, when it comes to the next move in US interest rates. Very interesting. Something Joe Biden, I'm sure, will be watching heading into the elections as well. But before you go, Ewan, we do have one other story from your region, Dubai's property market. Looks like it's avoiding the slump that we've seen in other parts. Yeah, Chris, this is another economy which is doing rather well at the moment. That is the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, where I'm sitting at the moment. GDP is growing strongly. The population is growing rapidly. It's a city of three and a half million people. And plenty of people are flocking here, really from all over the world. And behind the boom in the UAE economy is a liberalizing of the economy. Uh, There's a decades-old model which prevails across much of the Gulf region, which links residency to employment. Well, that's gone out of the window. Uh, Dubai has abolished the requirement for companies to have a majority local partner. Uh, They've introduced long-term golden visas uh, so that foreigners can make this place home and stay as long as they like. Uh, citizenship is still off off limits for most. Uh, they've even um, reformed the weekend, make it uh, moving it from uh, Friday and Saturday to align it with the rest of the Western world. And in fact, they've introduced a four and a half day working week, so you get half of Friday off, and then all of Saturday and Sunday if you're lucky enough to have the kind of job which uh, allows that. Many people in Dubai uh, do not. It should be pointed out. The impact uh, uh, is most evident in the property market, particularly the commercial real estate market. We've spoken before about the. Uh, a terrible time that investors are having in office space. Uh, Post-pandemic, a lot of office values have really slumped. Buildings in New York are being sold off for a fraction of uh, the price that they were bought for. But here in Dubai, uh, office occupancy is at record highs. Rents are rising. Uh, and in fact, in Dubai's financial district, uh, where I am at the moment, DIFC, office space is really scarce, and that's pushing up prices. Uh, so the Dubai economy uh, doing pretty well. Uh, that is not the case for much of the world. Yeah, really interesting, you and to see hear those developments there compared to other downtowns that I've seen in many places, as you say, New York or DC. You and thank you very much. That was you and Potts. And finally, on today's show, if you have been traveling anywhere near an airport or train station or downtowns, for that matter, in Europe over the last few months, you may well have been impacted by strikes or farmers or demonstrations blocking your inconspicuous attempted city vacation. Well, now it's reached the epitome of global tourism with the closure of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. To tell us more, Florence Biederman is a Paris-based political analyst and former AFP news editor. Florence, this this is the big one. This is a big deal. How long could this strike go on? Yeah, good morning, Chris. Yes, this is, I mean, one of the most visited monuments in the world, you know, so it's quite symbolic. Uh, the world, I mean, the strike already entered its second day, which is pretty rare. You know, there are some strikes at the Tour Eiffel. Usually they don't last. Um, and the problem is kind of a dispute between uh, the employees, uh, the, the trade unions and uh, the municipal Paris municipality, which owns 
this uh, historical monument. And uh, the trade unions think that they are overestimating the number of visitors uh, that can be expecting during the Olympic Games. So they base their financial uh, vision on this uh, and uh, they overestimate, uh, uh, they underestimate the cost of maintaining the building. So the dispute is around this, like uh, on, on a financial basis. And eventually, of course, the trade unions think the employees won't get maybe uh, as paid as they would like or they they won't be able to welcome uh, the public as uh, they would like so that's uh, that's the reason of the strike well and as i understand Florence, the numbers for visits to the eiffel tower had been rising ahead of the olympics how much of a concern will this kind of prompt for paris authorities ahead of the olympics themselves well i mean uh, you know they're expecting something like 15 million people during the olympics uh, they hope like to have more than se- seven and a half million visitors uh, this year uh, for the Tour Eiffel, you know, which is uh, uh, which kind of a gamble. You know, you never know whether it will happen or not. And uh, if the dispute goes on, like uh, that could be really worrying for the municipality uh, because the games are starting in July. Uh, let's suppose the trade unions again are not happy and they start another strike during the Olympic game. That would be like a disaster in terms of the image of France. Like you already mentioned, like there are strikes uh, of the former, of this and that. So uh, that wouldn't be very good for for, uh, for the image of the country. Well, just given that image, as you're talking about there, I just wonder what your sense is in general when it comes to strikes and Paris uh, d- during, ahead of the Olympics. I mean, is this just the start? Do people kind of fear there? Or could there be some other aspect of this? Could there be a kind of patriotism around the Olympics that says we need to keep Paris running? Yes, uh, I think, I hope there will be. <laughs> no, there was already strikes of uh, the police because uh, they think they will be, uh, you know, very, very busy, over busy during the game. So you have some little social movements in uh, there. I guess like the people profit of uh, the fact that the games are coming, you know, to try to, to get more from uh, uh, from either the municipality or, or the government. But I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't worry to think it would be a mess during the games, honestly. Let's let's wait and see. But uh, I don't know whether it's patriotism or just because the people are reasonable or because the situation is is not that bad for them either. Uh, just just finally, Florence, do you get the sense this will have any impact on the general support for the Olympics in Paris? That's been tricky as well. Oh yeah, it's been very tricky. I mean, you know, I mean, most visitors to the Eiffel Tower are foreigners, so it's not that it has a, an impact for mm. the daily life of uh, Parisians. But definitely, yes, the attitude to the game is very ambiguous because uh, the government said, "Oh, you you should go on holiday during the games because uh, there would be too many people in Paris." Now the mayor of Paris said, "Oh no, please stay during the game. It will be such a nice moment." So there are kind of contradictory signals, and uh, there is some kind of skepticism and people are waiting to see whether it will work or not. Very interesting. We'll have to see how that continues going forward. That was Florence Biederman. Thank you very much for joining us. And that is all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monham-Coombs. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. The, bra- the Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Chermak. Goodbye and thanks for listening.